Who is Jesus, not what does the fox say? Mark 2, verse 13 through 17. Here we go. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we consider it, okay? Father, we're grateful for your grace. Thank you that you meet us in whatever condition we find ourselves in. I pray that you will draw close uh, in these next few moments. And by your spirit, through the power of your word, would you comfort the afflicted? Would you also afflict the comfortable? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine told me the story um, about a friend of hers that was living in New York City a few years ago. This was like back in 2004 or something. And so this friend is chilling at a coffee shop, and this random dude kind of sits down next to her and strikes up a conversation, and they're hanging out, and um, by the end of their conversation, he asked her out on a date, which is what guys do. Guys. <laughs> and... Uh, because she's not accustomed to going out with, you know, random dudes that she met in the coffee shop, she turned him down, though he was attractive. And later that very same day, she's walking around the streets of Manhattan, and she sees this billboard with his face on it, advertising for this new show that was coming out called Lost. And that was Matthew Fox, is that his name? The Jack Shepard, the dude that played Jack Shepard in... in uh, the show Lost. Now, my guess is, you know, total buzzkill, total bummer, ah, come back. But my guess is, in light of her reaction, if she had known who that was, her reaction may have been a little bit different. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in this particular passage, we see two different reactions to Jesus. And these reactions are telling because these people actually know who they're dealing with. They know who Jesus is. They've seen the billboards. They've interacted with him. And their reaction to him is telling because not only does it tell you a lot about them, but it tells you a lot about Jesus as well. So we're just going to look at two things tonight. Two quick, easy, accessible things from this text. And here they are. Why bad people love Jesus and why good people hate Jesus. Those are the two things we're going to look at. Why bad people hate Jesus, love Jesus rather, why bad people love Jesus, and why good people hate him. Okay? So let's first look at why bad people love Jesus. And to set this up, just to kind of parachute into this text, the story begins with Jesus out walking along the beach. He's he's doing a lot of long walks on the beach at the beginning of Mark, but here he is again, walking along the beach, and he sees this dude named Levi chilling at his tax collector's booth, and he calls Levi to follow him, which Levi does. And the weight of that will get completely lost on you unless you understand what tax collectors are in this day and age. So tax collectors would 
collect taxes. And here's what they would do. They would collect taxes from Israelites and they would give it to Rome, which as you may or may not know, Rome as an empire had come in and set up shop in the geographical region of Israel as kind of like the man. So Rome is the man and tax collectors are funding the man. But what tax collectors were notorious for doing was taking more money in than they needed to collect and so they could skim some off the top and keep some for themselves. So they're greedy, uh, you know, they're basically white-collar criminals. Everybody hates them. But if you notice, the tax collector in this story, his name is Levi. And Levi is a Jewish name, which means Levi is a Jewish person who is betraying his own people Ripping off his own people to give money to their enemy. So Levi, of all people, would have been seen as a traitor, the bottom of the rung, a liar, hated, the lowest of the low. And here's what I want you to see. It is this person, this traitor, this greedy sellout that Jesus pursues. That Jesus goes right up to and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be in my life. I want to be in your life. And he does it. And actually, what's what's interesting, if you look at verse 15, the very next scene, Levi is throwing a party, and he invites all of his other, like his network of tax collector scumbag friends to join him. So they're having this huge party, and when it says tax collectors and sinners, the reason why sinners, that word is in quotes there, is because that's a technical term to refer to kind of anybody that really just kind of didn't give a rip about God or about God's laws. So if you hit the pause button there, and take a, just look at this scene. Who is Jesus partying with? He is partying with moral failures. He is partying with, with the lowest of the low, with complete outcasts, people that have screwed up their lives. He's partying with bottom feeders and mouth breathers and total just outcasts of society that nobody would want anything to do with. And this is who Jesus is hanging out with and moving towards. And I think this is why bad people like this in this story love him. Why they love him. Why they're feasting with him. Why they're partying with him. Because they know and they sense and they feel that he loves them first. Because they know, they they don't feel that pressure that they have to measure up. That they have to perform. They don't feel that paralyzing burden of, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not funny enough. They know that Jesus just loves them and enjoys them, mess and all. And so that's why they love him. Before I was the RUF campus minister here, I was the RUF campus minister at Appalachian State University, which uh, we were there for four years. And uh, a couple years ago, I was meeting with one of our students in uh, the big kind of busy dining facility, which would be kind of like the UC here. And we're meeting at lunchtime, and it's this crowded, you know, lunch time of the day where there's hundreds of people there. And we're sitting down because I had asked him if he would want to lead one of our Bible studies the next semester. And he wanted to sit down and talk with me about it. So we sit down and he says, look, I want to talk with you about Bible study next semester, but I I need to let you know something about me. And he went on to tell me something about his life, the struggle that he had been having for years. And he never really told anybody else before. A struggle that was um, deeply shameful for him. One that brought him incredible amounts of guilt. And so we're sitting here, and he lets me in on his story, which was an enormous risk for him. Because he had no idea how I was going to respond. He doesn't know if I was going to be shocked or 
judgmental or he, 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 he had no clue. So he was incredibly courageous to take this risk. And I actually found it as a huge privilege and an honor for him to, to let me into his life at this intimate of a level. But here he is, and he lets me in on this incredibly shameful struggle. And then, you know, and he wanted to know whether or not this particular struggle was going to, you know, um, jeopardize him being a Bible study leader next semester. And so I, I tried to very tenderly share with him that the grace and the love of Jesus meets him in every area of his life. That there is no mess, there is no struggle, there is no issue that is bigger than Jesus. And Jesus meets him in the midst of that and embraces him and accepts him, even in light of his struggle. It's not like Jesus is looking at him and saying, fix your struggle, stop struggling with that, and then when you're done with that, then I can do some business with you. And as I'm telling this to him, you really really could see his his posture change. And it was like the burden lifted. And he looked at me and he says, does this mean that I... Can, he was basically saying, does this mean I can't be a Bible study leader next semester? And I looked at him and I said, look, you're precisely the person, the type of person that I want leading Bible studies in RUF. Someone who has struggles and is not afraid to acknowledge them and admit them, but to also take them to Jesus, knowing that he receives you, knowing that he accepts you, and that there's grace for you. And he's tears well up in his eyes, and he starts bawling breaking down and like, so picture that you see us sitting there and this, you know, dude weeping and bawling. And I'm like, should I, do I comfort you? Like, I don't know what to do right now. And so it was this beautiful moment though of him really. And as he, and as we've talked about it since then, it was this beautiful moment where he was really like for the first time I tasted, I experienced God's grace that my secrets, my shame, my struggles do not repel him, but actually move him closer in where he receives me and, and embraces me in the midst of that. And the sad thing is, is there's a lot of you here tonight that don't believe that. There's this, the reality is that some of y'all really do think that in light of my mess, my struggles, my secrets, my issues, Jesus can't possibly love me. He can't possibly give grace to me. He doesn't like me when I'm messy. Now, I, I know, I mean, we're one, we're one month into school, and I know some of y'all have had horrible semesters already, where y'all have done things in the past four weeks that you never thought you would do. Or some of you have secrets like this guy. You have skeletons in closet where you want nobody to ever find out about it. Or you have that one thing that you've failed at for the 5,000th time. And you look at God and you picture him and you think, okay, he, he is so disappointed in me. He is so aggravated with me. He is so ready to throw up his hands and be done with me unless I get it together. Unless I finally just kind of take my faith seriously and start cleaning up my act and I never do that thing again. But I've got much better news for you tonight. Jesus embraces you and gives grace to you in the midst of your secrets, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your shame. He does not say clean up and then we can talk. He says you for who you really are that nobody else may know. You who you really are, messy, angry, frustrated, guilty, full of shame. It's that person I love. That's why bad people love him. But that's not the only reaction in this story. There's another reaction. It's from the good people. So let's look at that next. Why good people hate him. And we're introduced to these good people in verse 16. The Pharisees. 
many of you know, if you've grown up around church or if you're just familiar with the Bible, Pharisees were like the religious elite of the day. I mean, spiritually speaking, these dudes were varsity. These guys know what they were doing. The problem was they thought they were good because they took their faith so seriously. They thought they were good because they took their faith seriously. In other words, they did all the right things. They believed all the right things. They had all the right theology. They didn't do the bad stuff. And frankly, they were very proud of that. And it's this group of people that hates Jesus. In fact, the very next chapter, Mark chapter 3, these dudes all get together and start brainstorming about ways that they can kill him. So they don't like him. They want him gone. Why, though? Why do good people like this hate Jesus? Well, I think this passage gives you two reasons, two little clues that point out why good, moral, religious people really don't like him. Here's the first reason that we see. Because good, moral, religious people think that holy people shouldn't hang out with sinful people. Holy people, us, shouldn't hang out with sinful people, them. And here's where we get this from. If you, if you look at verse 16, let me read it for you. It says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because in their mind, the, reason, the way that you know that you're holy is you avoid bad things. You avoid bad people and you avoid bad stuff. And so here's Jesus who's going around telling everybody he's God. He's supposed to be holy. Why in the world would he be hanging out with them? It makes no sense. It's blowing their, their categories. About a year ago, I took my car in for um, oil change and inspection and stuff. And so I drop it off and I'm waiting in the little waiting area on one of the little couches there. And one of the mechanics, the service guys from the back, comes out uh, to take a break and he just kind of ends up just kind of plopping on the little couch next to me and just we just end up kind of talking. And he goes on to tell me that the owner of this dealership was a preacher. So this preacher who owns a car dealership on the side, I guess. And uh, he told me the story about one day the owner slash preacher was walking through the shop and Here's one of the mechanics, cursing. That was the word he used, cursing. And this owner fires him on the spot. And I was like, whoa, why did he do that? And the guy sitting next to me was like, he doesn't tolerate that. And, you know, I don't know how to run a business. I don't know if that's wise. If you're a business person, if it would be the right business move to fire somebody's cursing in your shop. I don't know. That's not my point. My point is, is that the guy sitting next to me associated the owner as a preacher, as a Christian, and yet here's someone who cannot tolerate sin, can't be around it. My guess is that's why some of you hate the church. Because you feel like, you know, in church, if I go to church, there's no real sinners allowed. People with real problems aren't welcome here. So if I want to come to church, I've got to dress up, I've got to clean up, I've got to smile, and I've got to fake it. That's why you hate it. That's why maybe why some of you hate hanging around Christians. Because sometimes Christians can indirectly kind of act like the sin police. You know what I'm talking about? Where they're just kind of always in their facial reactions showing some form of disappointment in you. But is that Jesus? No. Is that what Jesus is doing in this passage? No. Look, does Jesus, is Jesus holy? Yes. Does Jesus care about holiness? Yes, Absolutely. Does Jesus want everyone in this room to be holy? Yes. But look at Jesus. If he is the embodiment of holiness, 
God incarnate. What does that look like for him? It leads him not away from people, but towards people. Not away from unclean, bad people, but actually towards them. And there's some of you that I know are Christians, identify yourselves as Christians, and yet there are people or groups on this campus that you avoid, that you want nothing to do with. And we could talk about different groups or whatever. I just want to highlight one. There's lots that we could choose from. One group that I think some Christians on this campus avoid are those people that are involved in the Greek system. And you avoid them not because you're just not interested in rushing. You avoid them, frankly, because you think that they're unclean, that they're bad, you're good. It's beneath you, that you're better than them because you don't, quote, have to buy your friends like them. And so you avoid them. Instead of rather moving towards them out of love, you hang back and mock them. Look, y'all, that... I'm going to try to say this as delicately as I can. That's toxic. That is the very pride that Jesus is confronting here. Real Christian holiness. Jesus is is modeling and embodying what it looks like to love your neighbor. It means to move and to love towards people that you may see as unclean. But I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's not the Greek system for you. Maybe, Maybe it's for you as the people that aren't Greeks. Because you only hang out with Greek people. And if they're not in the Greek system, then... They're unclean to you. I don't know. Whatever it is for you. There's some group out there. Maybe it's a different racial group. Maybe it's that girl down your hall. I don't know. But if there's someone on this campus that you despise, Jesus is going to be very confusing and very frustrating to you. Because as we go through Mark, you're going to see over and over and over again, the people that you despise and want nothing to do with are the very people Jesus is partying with. And that's one of the reasons why good people hate him. Because they cannot figure out why in the world he would want to hang out with someone that's beneath them. Here's the second reason why good people tend to hate Jesus. It's because Jesus tells good people that they need him in order to be saved. Jesus tells good people that they need him in order for him to save them. Okay, here's where I get this from. Look at verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus says to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's what he's saying. He's saying everybody is spiritually sick. Everyone. Everyone is spiritually sick. But only the people, only people will get medical support if they know that they're sick enough to go to the doctor. In other words, if you actually have cancer, let's say, and you think that you don't, you're going to end up dying. That's the reality. That's the point Jesus is making. And so in other words, what Jesus is doing, he's telling good people, good, moral, religious, church-going people that they're so diseased, they're so sick, their only cure is in him. And what he's, he's, he's basically telling people that look like they run marathons, that they're on life support, and that their only cure is him. And if you are a good, moral, religious person, that is deeply offensive. Because what Jesus is doing is look at you and he's saying, you're not that great. Whatever you are using to convince yourself that you're good, it's a delusion. And, and that's, that's, that's offensive. And look, this is probably why being a Christian and going to church and being involved in RUF is a little bit dangerous. Because frankly, it's just so easy to come in here, come to RUF, or come to church, or go to whatever campus ministry, Try to read your Bible somewhat consistently. Try to pray. You don't party. You don't have sex. 
It's so easy to look at all of that stuff and to be lulled into this lie that you don't need Jesus as much as those people do. But what Jesus is showing is showing that everybody's much worse off than we think we are. Good illustration of this. Uh, one of my favorite musicians is Sufjan Stevens. And if you've heard his song, John Wayne Gacy Jr., you know where I'm going with this. But that is an unbelievable song. It's, it's um, sobering. It's horrible, beautiful, all at the same time. It's the story about this actual man named John Wayne Gacy Jr. who was a serial killer in the Chicago area in the 1970s. And the story was is that this man would lure little boys into his um, home because he dressed up like a clown. So he would lure people into his home. Uh, and when, they were, when, when the boys were alone uh, and vulnerable, he would rape them, he would kill them, and he would store their bodies underneath um, the crawl space in his house. And so you, you're hearing the song, and it's just awful. It's just this gut-wrenching, horrific, sobering story about this man. But then at the very end of the song, Sufjan Stevens transitions from narrator mode of telling the story, and he kind of goes into first person, and he's using his own voice. And here's what he says at the very end of the song. The, The last words of the song are this, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. When you hear that, you're like, good grief, he's saying... On my best behavior, not my worst, I am like him, a horrible pedophile serial killer. And when you hear that, it's hard to not just have your stomach turn and and be in complete shock. Because he's basically saying, me and this dude, as horrible as he is and as good as I like to think of myself, we're a lot more alike than I think that we are. And the shock that you feel from that song is the shock that Jesus is bringing home in this passage. Because he's looking at you and me, good people in this room, and saying, look, whatever you're using to convince yourself that you're good, it's a lie. You're not. Your attendance at RUF, your attendance at church does not earn you points in God's relationship with you. Your quiet time reading, your Bible reading doesn't earn you extra credit to him. You being involved in ministry and listening to Christian music only does not earn points with him. And, and, and this is, what Jesus is doing is he's looking and he's saying, look, tax collectors and Pharisees both need me because they're both sick. Drug addicts and preachers are both sick and therefore they both need me. Rapists, terrorists, and Bible study leaders both need me because they're both sick. Look, if I'm honest... I'm tempted to look at the resume of my life, the statistics of my life, and to find a lot of comfort there. Because I'm in ministry. I'm a Christian minister. Uh, I lead Bible studies. I read Christian books. And I don't do the things that my high school friends now do. It's very easy and tempting for me to look at that and to base the whole root structure of my identity and my self-confidence on those things. When things get bad, that's what I look at for comfort. And as long as I do that, that's me saying I'm good, I'm healthy, I got this, and therefore I don't need Jesus. When actually Jesus is looking at me and he's looking at you and saying we have have an aggressive spiritual cancer that goes untreated when we do that. So where am I going with all this? Your badness does not keep you from Jesus. 
but your goodness can. Your badness does not keep you from Jesus, but but your goodness can. Because as you go through the gospel stories, you see Jesus hanging out with the type of people he hangs out with. There is no one that is too bad for Jesus. There are lots of people that are too good for him. A lot of people that just don't think that they need him. If you think about church or Christian culture, Christian community as primarily a social thing, this this should be infuriating you right now. And if it's not, you're not paying attention. Because he's looking at you and saying, whatever you have earns you nothing with me. Your Bible study reading, your church attendance, your prayer, you're trying to be good, you're trying to be nice, you're not partying, you're not having sex, you're not going on the strip, you're not doing the bad things, you're doing all the good things. That doesn't get you anywhere. That is offensive. And that's why good people hate him. So where do we go from here? Should we just... uh, spiral into depression and call it a night or where where, where, where do we go no that's not where we're going to go there's there's incredible joy incredible hope that's held out for us and here's where it is if you look back again at this metaphor jesus uses in verse 17 he's using this language this metaphor this imagery of being a physician he says only people who know that they're sick go to the doctor and i've come to be their doctor and so jesus is making this point is that when you come to me you, got, you find healing. You find healing. The church is not a warehouse for sinners. It is a hospital for sinners. And what that means is when you come to Jesus, he actually changes you. He transforms you. He meets you in the midst of that. You know, he doesn't want these tax collectors and these Pharisees, to, these tax collectors, these Pharisees, these prostitutes, to stay where they are. Why? Because their life is toxic. It's poisonous. It's unhappy. It's unfulfilling. And so he actually wants to change them. For him to order their lives, for, for them to be brought into joy and worship and liberation. And what we learn is he loves you so much He loves sinners as you are, but he loves sinners too much to let them stay that way. He loves you as you are, absolutely, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. So what do we see? Look at Levi himself. Look at how he is transformed and healed on the spot in this particular passage. Verse 14, he leaves his tax collector booth. This is Levi walking away from his former lifestyle. This is him having a new purpose, a new agenda in life. Look at verse 17. He immediately starts doing evangelism with all of his non-Christian friends. He brings all of his unbelieving friends around Jesus. He's now developing a heart to serve and to love his people. When Jesus comes into your life, you are healed and transformed. And so if you are sick, if you are desperate, if you are at the end of your rope, if you have things about your life that you're deeply ashamed of, if you're a thief, a drug addict, a porn addict, a shopping addict, If you have been abused, if you have abused others, if you can't control your rage, you can't control your hatred, you can't control your imagination, when you come to Jesus like that, you find healing for your wounds. He undoes your shame. He liberates you from your slavery. He gives you a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new heart with new desires. He changes you. He heals you. How can he do this? Because at the cross, he was dressed up in your resume and my resume. At the cross, he put on, as it were, all of Matt Howell's anger and greed and lust and pride and sense of entitlement, and he got crushed for it. 
so that I could get his identity, his name, his connection with the Father, all the blessings that were due to him. He gets what I deserve, I get what he deserves. And the offer is the same for you. That's how you get healing. I'll end with this. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Magnolia. And it, is, uh, it was actually labeled by Christianity Today as one of the most Christian movies that came out that year. Now, you need to know, this is not a Christian movie. It's not uh, written or directed or influenced in any way by a Christian. It just the themes that it touches on are unbelievably Christian-ish, if you can put it that way. But I do need to say this. It's unbelievably gritty, graphic, raw. So if you have a sensitive palate, don't watch it. Actually, uh, I, I used this story, this, this movie, in a sermon a couple of years ago. And one of my students um, went home that weekend, rented it, and watched it with his parents under the, you know, he, he told his parents, this is my Christian minister's favorite movie. And... Um, that was a bad idea for him to do. So do not do this. I, I feel like I cannot recommend you to watch this movie, but you need to watch this movie. <laughs> but I'm going on record as saying I cannot recommend you watching it, but you need to watch it. Here's what the movie's about. It's about the story of 13 different characters, but I really want to zero in on only two. One character is this um, cop. He's kind of this bumbling, clumsy cop who is single. He lives alone. He's in his mid-30s. And he is kind of like the Christ figure of the story. Because the, the, the opening sequence, he's in his room praying. He's, just a, he's a good cop trying to do good in the world. And at one point in the story, he, he, he's on a, uh, he gets a d- disturbance call. And so he goes to this um, apartment where the, the police have been called because the, there's a noise complaint. He's banging on the door, and he opens, you know, he gets in the door, and the, the girl that's in there is this other character in the story who's probably the most dysfunctional, messed-up character in the whole story. Case in point, the opening scene that she's in, she's having sex for drug money. As the story goes on, um, you find out that her father sexually abused her when she was little, uh, and she's, a, she's addicted to cocaine, She's got long, kind of stringy, matted hair. She's really unhealthily skinny and just looks, um, just looks awful. The whole movie, she never smiles. And as the movie unfolds, the cop falls in love with her. And they go on this date, and he's telling her that he wants to be there for her, and he wants to um, pursue her, and she's trying to you know, push him off initially. And, and as you're experiencing this as a movie, movie viewer, you're wondering, what in, what in the world? Why is this guy falling in love with this girl? If this is the Christ figure, why is he falling in love with that? Because that's what the gospel is. That Jesus loves you pursues you in the midst of your addiction, in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your abuse, in the midst of wherever you are, that's where he wants to meet you. And actually, the very last scene of the movie is my favorite. It's a four-minute-long, one-screen shot of just zooming in on this girl's face. She's sitting on the bed. She has her kind of her usual scowl. And there's this song playing, and the song is kind of slowly building. And for four minutes, it's one screen. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Sorry, she's like this. The very last, the very last scene is uh, this, this, it's zooming in closer and closer and closer. If you think about four minutes of one screen in the movie, 
It's a very long time. So you're waiting, you're waiting. The, the, the music is building, the music is building, the music is building. And it gets in close to her face. And right as the music is about to start crescendoing, she smiles. Goes to the credits. Because the love of this cop, this aggressive, relentless love for her in her shame, in her mess, transformed her. Gave her joy. I want to end with this. You are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. But you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Will you come to him and find it? It's an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us faith and, and eyes to see, hands to reach out and grasp the, this loving, gracious Savior that we have. Will you burn it into our hearts? Will you open up our eyes to see that we have a great need for a Savior and we have a great Savior for our need? Change us, heal us, transform us, meet us in the midst of the dark places in our heart, our secrets, our shame, and may we find the loving, accepting, validating, forgiving arms of a Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.